Well, good morning, everybody. So we decided that we would have some fun today and encourage everyone to wear their favorite jersey from any sport, from any team, as we celebrate the kickoff of our new sermon series called Playbook, God's Design for a Winning Team. So a playbook, you know, is a description of plays for a team to use so they will all be on the same page. So the players and the coaches and everyone's coordinated and working together so they can win. And I was looking for a playbook to bring up here and to show you, and I found out that most playbooks are electronic these days, so I had a little trouble with that. But there's an old school playbook that I was actually able to get a picture from, from Coach Randall from uh, Clover Park. So here's a picture of that. So uh, thanks, Coach Randall. Thanks, Taz. And it says, double the 46 double. And that's a defensive play, he said, from about 30 years ago, back when he was working under Rex Ryan. So pretty cool. That's impressive. So thanks, for, thanks uh, Taz, for that. But don't miss the point. And the point is, First Timothy is really like a playbook. It's a playbook for God's team. It's a playbook for the church of Jesus Christ so that we'll be on the same page, so be working together in unity and winning here in the world for the Lord. When you can see I'm wearing one of my, uh, a jersey of my favorite all-time football player, John Elway. So 35 years ago, we moved to Colorado to pastor a church there, and we were there for eight football seasons. And I've never really gotten over that as far as I, I, I love John Elway. Still a fan. And I know this is a little distracting to some of you, so I also just wanted to... <laughs> yeah, I can see the head. So just wanted to assure you that uh, I've been around here almost 20 years now, and I'm really growing to be more and more of a Seahawk fan. And in fact, I've got this under here. But it's kind of 52-48 right now. But if the Broncos keep playing like they have the last couple of years, I think they'll be switched next year. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> so there's many things that coaches and players do to protect the team. The classic example, though, that comes to my mind is from the movie Blindside. So we're going to watch a little short clip from Blindside. I hope you enjoy this. Baby, wash my stuff, all right? Okay. Well, at least it looked good coming off the bus. They'll be terrified till they realize he's a marshmallow. <laughs> Looks like Tarzan plays like Jane. Give me a minute, Bert. We're in the middle of practice, Leanne. You can thank me later. Michael, do you remember when we first met and we went to that horrible part of town to buy you those dreadful clothes? And I was a little bit scared and you told me not to worry about it because you had my back. Do you remember that? Yes, ma'am. And if anyone tried to get to me, you would have stopped them, right? And when you and SJ were in that car wreck, what did you do to the airbag? Stopped it. You stopped it. You stopped it. This team is your family, Michael. You have to protect them from those guys, okay? Listen. Okay. Tony here's your quarterback, all right? You protect his blind side. When you look at him, you think of me, how you have my back, how you have his. Okay? All right, Tony, go back. All right. Uncle Lumpy here is your tailback. When you look at him, you think of SJ and how you've never let anyone or anything hurt him. You understand me? All right, go back. 
Got it? What about Collins and Mr. Tui? Fine. They can be on the team, too. Are you going to protect the family, Michael? Yes, ma'am. Good boy. Then go have some fun. Yelling at him doesn't work, Bert. Doesn't trust men. He's experienced they pretend to care about you till they disappear. Such a good movie. I need to watch that again. Beloved, the church is God's family. It's God's team. And he is all about protecting it. And that is largely what the book of 1 Timothy is about too. So we're going to jump right in and we're going to learn our playbook today. So please grab your sermon notes and pull these out or open them up on your app. As we get a little playbook introduction, the who and the what and the why of 1 Timothy. And we're going to start with verse 1, which is about the author. And the first thing to understand about this book of the Bible is that it's a letter. Now, much of the New Testament was made up of letters or epistles. Now, we all know what letters are, right? Okay? But I don't know how many of us actually write letters anymore, you know, with pen and paper and envelope and and all of that. We're much more prone to uh, use probably email or some other electronic platform. But in Paul's day, an old-fashioned letter was the norm. And 1 Timothy is a letter. So let's go ahead and read that first verse of 1 Timothy. If you're grabbing the Bible out of the chair in front of you, it's on page 991. 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So this is a letter written by a man who identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you like reading other people's mail, but God invites you to read this one, all right? This is a personal letter written from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. But we didn't just stumble across this letter between these two men written in the first century, not at all. Now, we believe that this letter, written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this is God's word for us today. And that's remarkable if you think about it. Guided by the Holy Spirit, when Paul wrote to his friend Timothy, it was a letter to his friend, but it was more than that. The Holy Spirit guided Paul directly. He influenced Paul, his mind and his heart, to write in such a way that it was exactly what Paul wanted to say to Timothy, not only for that moment in history, but also for God's people of all ages. And the term we use for that is inspiration. This is God's inspired word given to us in 1 Timothy in the form of a letter. And Paul identifies himself first as an apostle of Christ Jesus. So right from the outset of this letter... He emphasizes his credentials and his authority. See, Paul was not an apostle just because he decided that he wanted to be an apostle or take the title for himself like some people today do. And I would add that it is very unfortunate and dangerous that some today claim that they are apostles. That's what the new apostolic reformation is all about. I've mentioned that in the past. It's a very dangerous teaching, in my opinion, the New Apostolic Reformation, or NAR, also sometimes called the Kingdom Now or Dominion Theology. 
And if you would like to know more about it, we're not going to have time to go into it deeply at all, but I'd love to send you an e email with more information and, and resources to learn about the new apostolic reformation because it is everywhere. Probably most prominent right now at Bethel Church in Redding, California. At any rate, Paul was an apostle by the commandment of God, he says. God, in a divine and unmistakable way, chose Paul, appeared to him, chose him. The same one that we meet in the book of Acts, where he's called Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a violent opponent of Christianity. He was a persecutor of Christians. So much so that he was directly responsible for the murder of Christians in the first decade of the church. And Paul's dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road from being a persecutor to being the chief apostle is described in the book of Acts chapter 9. If you haven't read that recently, I'd encourage you to read it. God called him, chose him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Let me just say it again though. No one today on earth has apostolic authority like that. No one today has the authority to write scripture the authority to declare things for God to the church today as Paul did in his day. But apostolic authority does exist today. Do you know where it exists? It exists right here. Okay, not in a person, but it exists in the inspired word of God. Second, we see the recipient of this playbook. That's the second thing. So Timothy was Paul's young protege, and when I say young, I'm talking about relatively young, maybe 25 or 30 years younger than in age. So Paul was likely in his early 60s when he wrote this letter, and Timothy was probably in his late 30s. So it's not like Timothy was a, a child, but he was younger. And Paul had mentored him and discipled him, and then he left Timothy in Ephesus to represent him to the church in that area. And so Timothy was the pastor, so to speak, of the church in Ephesus. Now, don't think of a church in the same sense that you think of most churches today. Because in that day, the church in Ephesus would have consisted of a number of house churches, most likely. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to shepherd these house churches, these churches that met in homes, and to guard them against false teaching. And so Timothy had a role of overseeing many smaller congregations in the area of Ephesus, churches that met in homes. And the work in Ephesus, as described in Acts, was a very extensive, very large and growing work. Some believe it was into the thousands. So Timothy's role was much broader than pastoring one individual church. He also supervised a group of pastors or elders who led those house churches. And so this letter would have been read not only in Timothy's own congregation, but also in all the other congregations that met in homes around the Ephesus area. So let's see what Paul said to him now in verse 2. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice that statement, my true child in the faith. It's believed from this and other things that Paul led Timothy to faith in Christ. 
In other words, Timothy was Paul's spiritual father. Now, Timothy was from a town called Lystra. It's part of modern-day Turkey. And Paul visited Lystra both on his first and second missionary journeys. When Paul came back through Lystra on his second visit, his second journey, Timothy joined Paul and Silas as a companion in spreading the gospel. He was a teammate, a partner. And Paul later left Timothy in the city of Ephesus. Now, Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And so Timothy had a Jewish background spiritually, meaning he was raised at the feet of his mother and grandmother who taught him a knowledge of the Old Testament. But he was brought to faith in Jesus as Messiah by Paul himself, we believe. And Paul's essentially saying here, you guys in Ephesus, look to Timothy, trust him, trust his leadership. And that would have given great credibility to Timothy among those in Ephesus who loved and trusted the Apostle Paul. So now we come to verse 3 and we get to the heart of why Paul wrote this letter. And on your notes I call this the purpose. And it doesn't take Paul long to get right down to business. Verse 3 starts like this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So as I said, Paul gets right down to business, and what's the business? Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. I understand this. Ephesus was a large and influential city on the west coast of the Roman province called Asia Minor. So here's a map of that area of the world. So this this is Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey. Lystra's here, so Paul came through Lystra on his first journey and on his second journey, and then he left Timothy over here in the city of Ephesus. We visited this area. We visited Ephesus and Turkey about 10 years ago in the footsteps of Paul's journey. And Ephesus especially is an amazing place because of the ruins there that that you can still see today. And I want to show you a couple of pictures. So here's a picture of the library that remains, the facade of the library in Ephesus. It's a massive library, about twice the size of this room, and it held something like 15,000 scrolls in its day. So Ephesus was this very large, influential city. It was actually the western capital of the Roman Empire. So Rome, the western capital, I'm sorry, Ephesus was the eastern (laughs) capital of the Roman Empire. So very important city. And Acts describes the work in Ephesus as this vast, growing community that was developing there of believers. Acts 19 says the word of God went out throughout the entire region. And apparently there were thousands of believers meeting in hundreds of home churches in that area. Most of them relatively small, out of necessity, because they were meeting in homes. Here's another picture. This is the amphitheater, the ruins of the amphitheater in Ephesus. That theater seated 25,000 people. Any city that had any value to the Romans had an amphitheater, and this had a big one. It was designed for theatrical performances, later altered to allow for gladiator contests as well. And that amphitheater is still there. I remember standing at that amphitheater, reading Acts 19, and picturing Paul just wanting to go into the amphitheater and defend himself and preach the gospel, and his friends holding him back for fear of his life. 
But they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for a couple of hours, as I recall, because they were upset with Paul. And Artemis, the temple of Artemis, was also located in Ephesus, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was dedicated to Artemis, the goddess, the Greek goddess of the hunt. Only the foundation and one pillar of this temple remain today. So this is simply an artist's rendition based on the ruins that are there and other similar temples of that time period. Paul's growing ministry there was accused of hurting the worship of Artemis and this temple. And Acts describes how the artisans and the people of Ephesus gathered at that amphitheater to object to the success of the gospel and to the growth of the church in Ephesus. And they, they were threatened by that and the prophets that they saw going down and down and down. And so they had sort of this little riot that day. At any rate, Paul moved on from Ephesus and he spreads the gospel in other places and he leaves Timothy behind in Ephesus to help the church. And Paul writes him this letter and he encourages him remain at Ephesus. For some reason, it appears, Timothy was interested in moving on as well. For some reason, unstated here, we're not told why, apparently Timothy was thinking about leaving and Paul said, remain there, remain at Ephesus. I can think of many possible reasons that Timothy might have wanted to leave. Maybe he was intimidated by all of the false worship there and how angry they got about him. Maybe he was intimidated by the false teachers inside the church that he was wrestling against. Maybe he was simply challenged by the, the size and the scope of the ministry there he was responsible for. Or maybe he was tired of being compared to the Apostle Paul. You know, man, Timothy's not a bad preacher, but he sure isn't the Apostle Paul. You know, that kind of thing. Or maybe he just missed Paul and wanted to join him again. Whatever it was, for some reason it appears Paul or Timothy was thinking about Moving on, and Paul says, remain at Ephesus. Here's another hint. This is over in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress support of the truth. In other words, Timothy, this is the playbook for the church. Here's how you need to run the team in Ephesus. And so Timothy had a very, very important job to do. He was to make sure that the Word of God was accurately taught. It was critical to the Apostle Paul that the doctrine being taught was right on. And this is so important. Because in the church at large today, doctrine is amazingly unimportant. There is not a lot of interest on doctrine in the church in general today. And that's a problem. Paul said to Timothy, I want you to remain in Ephesus and oversee the believers there. and Make sure they're taught well. Make sure they're taught sound doctrine. Listen, beloved, doctrine is important. It matters what you believe. Truth is important to God. And it should be important to his people. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul instructs Timothy, stay in Ephesus, protect the church with respect to doctrine. In fact, it's safe to say that one of the main themes in the New Testament period is warning 
about false teaching. The importance of protecting the church doctrinally. It's important to God and it should be important to us. Well, let's read now how Paul describes it here in his letter that we call 1 Timothy. Here's the warning about false teaching, beginning in verse 4. So Paul gives a warning to his friend Timothy, and it deals with three things. We're going to see, he explains how to spot dangerous teaching, how to recognize sound teaching, and then how to use the Old Testament law. Paul was warning him about protecting God's team, which is the church. And he begins probably with the greatest threat of all. He begins with a warning about how to spot dangerous teaching. Spot, how to spot dangerous teaching. It's easy to recognize some false teaching. You know, the worship of Artemis, that, the Greek god Artemis, was easy to spot. But sometimes other kinds of teaching are a little bit harder to spot. And so this is, that's what this is about. And we begin by reading at verse 4. Charge certain persons not to teach any different, different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there was a group of bogus Bible teachers in Ephesus, apparently, that were messing people up. Most likely some of them were home school, excuse me, home church leaders. <laughs> home church leaders. <laughs> who considered themselves brilliant Bible scholars. And there were three warning signs that Paul mentions here, three ways to spot them, he says. The first way to spot false teaching is to keep an eye out for speculations. In the middle of verse 4, Paul mentioned those who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Now, Paul doesn't identify exactly what the air was that they were teaching, but obviously it didn't line up with scripture, and so he's calling them out. Most likely they were allegorical or fictitious interpretations of the Old Testament genealogies. And understand this, that allegory was very important, very popular in Paul's day, because it was the way teachers of that day would combine the Bible with the Greek philosophy that they loved so much, that was so important, so popular at that time. The Gnostics of that day called these deeper truths or higher truths, these allegories. In chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul calls false teaching there, he calls it doctrines of demons. So we need to be aware, these kind of speculations are actually from the enemy of our soul. An example of such speculation, not from Paul's time period, but a little bit later, uh, was the, the teaching that Jesus, when he was a child, he, he took some clay, he made it into a bird, he blew life into it, and it flew away. Okay, that myth appears in a writing called the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gost Gnostic gospel written in the 2nd century A.D. It's also copied over into the Quran, for example. 
And there was absolutely no reason whatsoever to put any trust into that story about Jesus. People just like to kind of fill in what happened in his early years, but that's, that's been known about for almost 2,000 years, and it's been rejected as error, and yet sometimes it still comes up today. The Da Vinci Code sort of resurrected the Gnostic Gospels a decade or so ago. So it's speculation, pure speculation. John Bunyan is reported to have said this. He said, some love the meat and some love to pick the bones. Beloved, God wants us to focus on the meat of the Word of God and avoid speculation. Examples of some speculation today would include an overemphasis on things like typology or numerology. Some people write entire books on Bible codes, you know, using numbers to say different things that they think God was trying to say, or, or blood moons, and other speculations that distract us from the pure milk of God's Word, the Word of God itself. And I'm personally of the opinion that one cause of speculation in the church today and, and uh, weakness in the church today is the disappearance of expository preaching. Because when you depart from expository preaching, you can talk about anything you want to. You can emphasize anything you want to, rather than teaching what the Bible emphasizes and what the Bible says. So there's a warning about speculations, guessing about things. Stay away from these, he says. Timothy, remain in Ephesus and teach the church there to ignore silly speculation that distracts people from spiritual growth. The second way to spot dangerous teaching is to look for vain discussion. That's, those words are seen at the end of verse 6. It's another common error that we're to guard against. Vain discussions. And what I believe that refers to is where Christians argue about controversial things. Things that aren't spelled out in the Bible. Do Christians like to argue about controversial things that aren't spelled out in the Bible? Oh yeah. When we get over to chapter 4, we're going to see two of these that, that uh, Paul actually mentions that plagued the church in Ephesus. Some of people there were teaching it's better to abstain from marriage altogether. And others taught it's better to abstain from eating certain things. And we'll talk about those when we get there. But here's the point. There are some things the Bible is crystal clear about. And there are some things the Bible doesn't give us specific answers about. Some things the Bible clearly tells us, know this, do this. Other things we have the freedom to come to our own convictions about, the Apostle Paul says, Romans 14. And God does not want us to argue about the things he doesn't clearly spell out for us. I'll give you an example. Some churches love to spend time talking about and arguing about the five points of Calvinism. The acrostic for that is TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. For example, the L in TULIP stands for limited atonement. So I'm talking about hyper-Calvinism at this point. And the L, limited atonement, is the view that Jesus didn't die for the entire world, but just for the elect, just for those who would actually trust him. Now, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But some people love to focus on things like that and to argue about that and to debate that ad nauseum. It's important to me, that one in particular, because the church that Jackie and I grew up in Portland split over that very thing, that debate, a couple of decades ago. Vain discussions. 
focusing on things that are not critical to the gospel, that are not directly addressed necessarily even in the Bible, things other than the Bible emphasizes. And one of the marks of false teaching is that it breaks us down into little camps rather than making us more like Jesus. I like the, the uh, quote that was from the Reformation era, and it goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. In all things, charity. And then there's a third way to spot dangerous teaching that Paul highlights, and it's what would be called confident ignorance. Confident ignorance. Have you ever been around that? It's those people who don't really have a clue, but they're just so sure that their view is the right view and that you have the wrong view. Now, the Bible does not give us answers to all of our questions. It doesn't address everything we might like it to address, but... Some people just feel like they've got to be dogmatic about every issue. That's one of the reasons why I appreciate Deuteronomy 29.29. Listen to this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things in life that are secret things that God does not want us to know. He chose not to reveal to us, but he's revealed other things to us. And whenever we focus on figuring out, trying to figure out the secret things that God decided not to reveal to us, we're digging into things that become speculation, that produce controversy, and we end up looking like a confident ignoramus. So that is the three things the church needs to be aware of three ways to spot, to spot false teaching. And next, Paul turns to how we recognize the real deal. How to recognize sound teaching. And this is hidden sort of right in the middle of the passage that we just read. So let's look again at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love. Here's how you recognize sound teaching. It produces agape love. There are three different words in the Greek language, in the Greek New Testament, for love. And the highest form of love is agape love. That's the word Paul used here. It's God's kind of love. It's a love that sacrifices for others. It's a love that puts the needs and interests of other people before your own. And Paul says that is the goal of sound teaching. It produces that kind of love. That's, that's how you can recognize it. See, the ultimate goal of a Bible teacher should not be to generate debate and controversy. And friends, beware of teachers who are always coming up with brand new truths. The goal of sound teaching is to cultivate the lives of his or her students so that they manifest love in their daily living. Genuine love for God and for other people is the goal of the Christian life. And so Paul contrasts the goal of his instruction and what he wants Timothy to instruct for with that of the false teachers in Ephesus. 
If teaching leads to pride and to arguments and controversy, it is opposite of what God is looking for. It is contrary to what God gave us this book for, and that means it's dangerous teaching. And yet so often the church, in the church, people get caught up with the trivial, where we argue over some obtuse point of theology, but we neglect to love people around us. And we're going to see two examples next week of this kind of teaching, two men who are mentioned by name at the end of chapter 1, who Paul had removed from their positions of authority in Ephesus for this very thing. So you can read about that as you read ahead this week. So dangerous Bible teaching leads to head knowledge that leads to arguments and to pride. Faithful Bible teaching leads to loving God more deeply and healthy relationships with other people. That's how we recognize it. Finally, I want to talk about how to use the Old Testament law. Paul's addressed how to spot false teaching, how to recognize sound teaching, and finally he addresses how to use the Old Testament, because the Old Testament can be really hard to understand sometimes. Have you noticed that? For example, there's that verse over in Leviticus 19 that says, don't get tattoos on your body. And some people love to quote that verse. But they forget that the verse right before that is Leviticus 19.27, and that verse says, and don't ever cut your beard. So look at all the rebels out here who have cut their beards and trimmed their beards and shaved their faces, right? There's some really confusing parts of the Old Testament. We have to figure out how, how do they apply to us today. Or think about all the Jewish dietary laws, like don't eat meat and dairy at the same time. That means don't go to the store and have a hamburger and a milkshake in the same meal, right? Or uh, worse yet, uh, don't eat shrimp or lob or crabster. Man, I hope that's still not for the day. So how do we know how to pick and choose what's for us today? And that's exactly where Paul is getting at. Next, verse 8 says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So I want to stop and I want to define that word law there. And I believe that word law is a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament. When Jesus spoke about the Old Testament, the Bible of his day, he spoke in terms of the law and the prophets. And the law was a term they used to refer to the Torah, to the five books written by Moses with all of the commandments and laws and regulations that God gave his people through Moses. So he's talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Paul says, we know that the law is good He's making it clear that he isn't saying just throw out the law, but it does need to be used properly, he says, for the reason that God gave it. And what is that? Well, let's read verses 8 to 11. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
The false teachers in Ephesus wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand how to use it. And if they were typical Jews of that day, they had a very pharisaical bent. They were probably teaching that you had to keep the law as a means of salvation. See, they used to have the idea that if you followed all the laws of the Old Testament really carefully, that that would make you right with God. That it would get you to heaven, keeping the law. And so the first thing we need to understand is this. It is not a stairway to heaven. It's not a stairway to heaven. Keeping the Old Testament law never got and will never get anyone to heaven. And here's how the Apostle Paul writes about that in Romans 3.20. Listen to this. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. See, the law was never meant as a stairway to heaven. It wasn't given to make us right with God. It was given to make us conscious of our sin. And so that's the first thing. The law was never meant as a stairway to heaven. Does that mean that the law has no value, though? Absolutely not. In fact, Paul says that the law is good. Verse 8. So what is it good for, then? Well, what we just read is that it exposes our sin. It shows us how sinful we are. The Old Testament law has great value in that it exposes our sinfulness. It helps us see our need for forgiveness of sin. So God's law can be compared to a mirror. You know how to use a mirror. The purpose of a mirror isn't to wash your face. The purpose of a mirror is to look at so you can see the dirt on your face so you can get cleaned up, right? And the purpose of the law is to convict you of your sin and drive you to Christ for cleansing. Keeping the law can't save anyone because no one can keep it perfectly except Jesus. Only Jesus can save. And if we had time, we'd look into this list more carefully of sins, this list of sins that Paul writes to the Ephesians about. What's interesting is that they are parallel, so closely parallel to the Ten Commandments. Every one of the Ten Commandments is included in this list in order, except keeping the Sabbath, which is for another sermon, all right? Also, have you ever heard someone claim that homosexuality is only condemned in the Old Testament? It's a very common statement that I hear sometimes. Now I want you to notice that it's mentioned here, it's, and that statement is absolutely false, that it's only in Old Testament, considered a sin in the Old Testament. Paul clearly lists the sin of homosexual relations in verse 10 that we just read. And by the way, he lists it elsewhere, and he lists it here in this verse right beside heterosexual immorality. No prejudice. He, he lists them all, all right? Now, I guarantee that in this list that we just read, there was some sin in this list that you and I have broken, that we're guilty of breaking. All of us have at least lied, right? Don't look at me like that. All of us have at least lied, right? <laughs> and the reason that we all see ourselves in this list is because we are all born with a sin nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's holy standard. And so the proper response to the law isn't to say, Lord, I'm so glad I'm better than that other guy. It's to say, God, help me. Please help me. I fall so short 
so far short of your standard. Please forgive me. Please save me. And thankfully, God doesn't leave us in despair. He provides a solution. God has provided the solution to our sin problem, and that's the third thing that we need to say about the law. It points us to Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus. The law is not a stairway to heaven. It exposes our sin. And third, it helps us by pointing us to Jesus so we're saved from our sin. Well, Paul said the law had a specific purpose. I want you to listen to how Paul describes it over in Galatians 3. Galatians 3 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. That's the proper use of the Old Testament law. And that is what these false teachers failed to see and to use it for. Their emphasis was all wrong. And they were using it to focus on obscure things like genealogies and mythical stories. Listen, beloved, the Word of God is incredibly powerful. But it needs to be used properly or it can actually mess us up. It can lead us astray. And that's what Paul is warning about here in 1 Timothy. Well, real quick, real quick in closing, I want to mention four application points or four next steps. Here's the first one. I will engage in God's word daily. Because that's how we get to know God. That's how we grow closer to the Lord. Okay? That, that's how we grow in our love for him and also in our love for others. And that's also, by the way, that's how we recognize false teaching. We need to engage in God's word daily. And so you, if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to find a Bible reading plan. Get into the Bible daily. Get onto a reading plan. You can download one from our church website. You can go to uh, Version, download the Version app, or stop by the Faith at Home Center and get a one-year uh, reading Bible. You can listen to the Bible audibly. If you have trouble reading, just listen to it audibly on the Version app. But make sure, one way or another, you are in God's Word daily. Next step two is I will devote myself to Bible study as well, to Bible study. It's a great thing to read the Bible daily, but it's also important to study the Bible because we miss so much when we simply read through passages and we skip over things. Even though it doesn't make sense if our goal is to get through a section, we often don't understand what we're reading and keep moving. So it's important to study, stop and study. We need to go deeper in the Bible because it's such a rich book. And there's so much that we can discover from learning from other people. And being in a small group, being in a Bible study of some sort, which leads me to next step number three. I will join in community to encourage my growth. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus and instructed him to make sure that the Bible was being used right. That what was being taught was true and accurate because doctrine is so important. And there is great value in being in community to make sure that you're learning God's word accurately. So you have people to go to and to ask your questions of. It's dangerous just to go to the internet and, and depend on the internet for that because there are so many false teachers online. You need to be connected to a church and studying the Bible with people you trust 
in order to grow spiritually. If you aren't in that kind of a study community already, I want to encourage you to get into one soon. In fact, I'd encourage you to sign up today for a small group if you haven't already. We're starting our small groups and our study of 1 Timothy in our small groups this very week. This would be a great day to stop by the Faith at Home Center and get signed up or get into a Bible study or get into one of our adult Bible classes and study the Bible. By the way, if you are one of our teachers here, if you're a small group leader or a coach or a pastor or an elder, what we have talked about today strongly applies to each one of you, to all of us. We have a role on the team of guarding doctrine, guarding against false teaching. Next step, number four, I will read and study 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 2, 8 for next weekend. So that's the passage we're looking at next week. If nothing else, at least read that Get ready for next weekend's sermon. And I want to close by giving an invitation today. We've been talking about the gospel, about the fact we can't be saved by keeping the uh, Old Testament law, but we are saved when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you're here today and you've never taken that step. I want to give you a chance to do that as we close in prayer. So think about doing that right now as we pray. Would you bow with me, please? Father God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you have given it to us, to your church, to your team. And Father, our prayer is that you would help us to engage with you in your word regularly. That you would help us to grow in our love for you and our love for one another. And that you would also give us discernment and understanding of your word. That you would keep us from majoring on the minors. And that you would keep us from wrong emphases and that you would help us to steer way clear of false teaching. Protect this team, this church family, I pray. Guard us against doctrinal error. Father, I pray that you would bless our small groups as we meet and discuss 1 Timothy 1 this week. I pray that you would grow us together in, in our understanding of your word and our love for each other. And then if you're here today and you're ready to take that, that next step in your faith, by trusting Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to do that right now. Just in the silence of this moment, pray silently in your heart something like this. Father, I'm ready to receive forgiveness in Christ. I understand I can't earn it by doing good things or keeping the Old Testament laws or being religious. But simply by faith, I receive forgiveness today. I put my faith in Jesus' death and resurrection right now. And Father, we thank you for that amazing gift. We love you and we worship you and we pray all of these things today in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.